Good evening from the University of Miami Convocation Center in Coral Gables, Florida. I'm Jim Lara of the NewsHour on PBS, and I welcome you to the first of the 2004 presidential debates between President George W. Bush, the Republican nominee, and Senator John Kerry, the Democratic nominee. These debates are sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debates. Tonight's will last 90 minutes, following detailed rules of engagement worked out by representatives of the candidates. I have agreed to enforce their rules on them. The umbrella topic is foreign policy and homeland security. But the specific subjects were chosen by me, the questions were composed by me, the candidates have not been told what they are, nor has anyone else. There is an audience here in the hall, but they will remain absolutely silent for the next 90 minutes, except for now when they join me in welcoming President Bush and Senator Kerry. Welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, guys. First of all, I'd like to thank the venue, Luke's apartment, for hosting <laughs> us. I'd like to thank my opponent, Luke, for making the time. Yeah, and while I uh, you know, have profound disagreements with Will, uh, you know, I respect his family... Uh, and his daughters, who are also uh, my daughters, nothing but respect. The podcasting process can take a real toll. It's hard when our daughters see, you know, their two dads out there on the campaign trail podcasting with each other. It wears on a family. I think we've all learned a lot. Happy New Year, guys. Th we're recording this three days into the new year. Um, you feel any different? Uh, it's going to be my birthday in a few days. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm going to be 29. Well, the, the new year, all it means for me is that uh, for the first week, my gym is like overcrowded with people, uh, <laughs> you know, on the verge of breaking their New Year's resolutions. Does, Besides that, I feel the same. Are you able to say definitively when people stop? Oh my God, it's every, it's every single, like the first week of January, every single time without fail. And then when does it get back to normal? Like next week it'll be normal okay yeah i don't go to the gym because you know i don't like running on a treadmill for 20 minutes <laughs> don't like lifting heavy things to burn a hundred calories <laughs> <laughs> and then you know just like go home and like have a bucket of popcorn well, what was it anyway? you were saying we're, I mean, we're getting wildly off topic what was <laughs> you're saying about like like you knew people where they justify going to the gym like by saying well yeah I, i've known people who say they'll go to the gym so that they can have their starbucks drink after which, you know, listen, I've been on the treadmill. I don't think a Starbucks drink is worth it. So you're just, just adding a little more, uh, like, fuel to the flame for the people whose, like, New Year's resolutions are already teetering on the brink to mix my metaphors. Continue your... <laughs> unhealthy lifestyle that's the uh, of not going to the gym that's the official mike lanus oh. position is to not you know don't don't try to improve yourself uh well it's a it's a new year and yeah everything's just about the same i guess i don't know i kind of stayed in town over the break uh you went home i guess yeah i did i mean we're back in toronto now we're suffering uh minus 20 weather yeah it's cold up here canada the, folks the big toronto the big scandal in toronto over the last couple days uh has been the homeless crisis during the winter months with negative 20 temperatures the shelters are at peak capacity so our mayor john tory has been pressured into reversing his position on opening the armories as homeless shelters previously he'd been not for opening the armories because can't have homeless people in the armories for god's sake well and it seems like he was kind of questioning what you know activists and what 
possibly even people administering uh, the services on the ground are saying like about capacity and stuff like that. Like, no, they're not actually a capacity. And uh, anyway, finally, he's kind of been shamed into uh, into doing something. So um, I don't know. Maybe- the sixth dad, uh, Norm Kelly, I've been seeing getting dragged a lot on Twitter for having voted against homeless shelter. Yeah, along funding. with along with Tory and a bunch of other yeah. people. Well, so there's there's our Canadian content for the. <laughs> but I think I think what I'm trying to get at is that it's been a very eventful first couple of days. Uh, you're blocked by Donald Trump on Twitter. Oh, do you have something to show me? <laughs> uh, a day ago, he wrote North Korean leader Kim Jong Un just stated that nuclear button is on his desk at all times. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. Now this is why we have 280 characters. <laughs> oh my god. I but, think I saw this last night because you sent it to me, but I also saw like all I mean what's amazing is I can't see Trump's tweets, but I can see everyone reacting to them. So usually I can extrapolate what the tweet is from like whatever David from and So, so you see 50 people who are quote tweeting something that that like this tweet cannot appear and it's yeah. all of yeah it's, yeah it's, it's david of, from saying like folks this isn't a joke anymore other people be like oh i never thought i'd miss george w bush yeah and then after that almost immediately after that he tweeted i will be announcing the capitalers most dishonest and corrupt media awards of the year on monday at five o'clock subjects will cover dishonesty and bad reporting in various categories from the fake news media Stay tuned. Can't wait till we make the list. Yeah. I don't know. The Trump thing, I mean, obviously that is like the North Korea tweet is completely unhinged. And, you know, I understand. Do you find it scary? It's, of course, yeah, of course. It's scary. Yeah. And it's very strange that, you know, I, I think I kind of expected just the institutional burden of the presidency and the constraints it places on people to kind of rein Trump's Trumpiness in. And it hasn't. But I mean, I don't know. That, that tweet is just... You know, and I guess we'll talk about this later on the episode. Like, it just underscores through, you know, hard work, bipartisan hard work. Um, the American empire has been built into a, a whirling death machine <laughs> capable of triggering involuntary global mass suicide at the push of a button. And nobody should, nobody should have uh, the power that Don. It's not the problem. Isn't that there's the wrong person exercising this power? It's that it shouldn't. Uh, it shouldn't exist. And well, this is going to be our first major disagreement of the episode because I think we had a chance to have a great man at the at, at the <laughs> nuclear button, and his name was John Kerry. Because <laughs> this week we watched oh, the uh, first 2004 presidential debate between John Kerry and, and, and war hero and won three purple hearts and incumbent. President, uh, the decider himself, George W. Bush, yeah, lost the popular vote, but you know, in the well, in the first, yeah. in the first mm-hmm. election, this one he uh, had a decisive victory. Yeah, just a shout out to friend of the show, Al Gore. There, Sorry, <laughs> yeah, God. I can make America safer than President Bush has made us, uh, and I believe President Bush and I both love our country equally, but we just have a different set of convictions about how you make America safe. I believe America is safest and strongest when we are leading the world and when we are leading strong alliances. I'll never give a veto to any country over our security, but I also know how to lead those alliances. This president has left them in shatters across the globe, and we're now 90% of the casualties in Iraq and 90% of the uh, costs. I think that's wrong, and I think we can do better. I have a better plan for homeland security. 
I have a better plan to be able to fight the war on terror by strengthening our military, strengthening our intelligence, by going after the financing more authoritatively, by doing what we need to do to rebuild the alliances, by reaching out to the Muslim world, which the President has almost not done, and beginning to isolate the radical Islamic Muslims, not have them isolate the United States of America. I know I can do a better job in Iraq, where I have a plan to have a summit with all of the allies, something this president has not yet achieved. Yeah, so really going back to our, our roots with this episode, you know, it's like sometimes artists, you know, you know, they get really kind of developed, they get removed from what they started out, but then they like to go back to where it all started. And I think that's, you know, we had our own kind of slacker uprising redux tonight in a very pure and unfiltered kind of way. Yeah, I guess it's unusual for us to do something like this because it's not a movie or a TV show, but... At the same time, it really is like, I, th- I think the, the beating heart of the Michael and us cosmos in some way. I feel this... like, I feel like, you know, we, we all left a piece of ourselves in that theater back in the University of whatever, the Florida of something or other. Because I think this was this 2004 <laughs> election, this is the election that you and I like were old enough to really be paying attention. Yeah, this is the, the formative American election if you're born in kind of the late 1980s, early 90s. And it was also, I think we were often told and we really regarded it as the most important election of our lifetime and it seemed like george w bush was this absolute aberration mm-hmm. and if he he fails to pronounce words properly yeah, he says nuclear yeah and the other guy says nuclear mm-hmm. i mean for god's sake so was was watching this debate a nostalgic experience for you no because i think nostalgia connotes like warm feelings <laughs> and like this was far worse than i'd envisioned like i think yeah. i suggested this originally and I mean, this debate really is terrible. Like this was, I mean, arguably the longest 90 minutes I think I've suffered for this show. And I don't, I don't say that lightly. I was pretty entertained throughout, which is more than I can say for some of the movies we've watched for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess I was entertained, but only like on a healthy diet of irony. Like that's the only thing that gets you through because it really is. So there's no domestic policy that's debated in it's this. It's a it's an entirely foreign policy. And debate, and essentially yeah. the whole debate I and mean, I guess we can talk about the specifics, but I mean the whole debate is pretty much just versions of like questions about the war on terror slash Iraq and the carry position is basically I would do all of those things, but I would do them better. And the George W. Bush position is up uh, I don't know if I heard my opponent right, but he seems to think you can win a war and not want to be in the war. <laughs> that don't cut the mustard for me. <laughs> you know, frankly, Bush has a point. I mean, the thing is, like, once you've committed, as Kerry did, as the Democrats did, to the idea that this ridiculous construct that uh, David Frum and George Bush invented, the axis of evil, that that exists, that, that it's like a kind of homogenous thing that you can wage a global war on mm-hmm. in a kind of unilateral and unrestricted way, that it can be extended to kind of basically any corner of the world and that almost anything is justified in in dealing with it. Once you've kind of conceded that ground, you don't have a lot of space to maneuver. So well, Kerry is forced to like complain about that we're, bear- we're bearing 90% of the costs in Iraq. You know, where, where are the other countries, you know, that could be paying for, you know, committing more troops and stuff? Yeah, what was such a weird experience about this was, do you remember watching this when it aired? Um, yeah. Because I remember watching it and thinking like, oh man, Kerry's got this. Yeah. The general reception of this debate was that Bush lost terribly. And I mean, Bush does, 
I think, unusually badly in this yeah. debate. He's He stumbles over his words. There are a lot of awkward pauses. You know, just a lot of kind of desperate moments where he kind of like pulls something out of his ass or, you know, repeats a soundbite over and over and over He pauses a lot again. as well. Sometimes for dramatic effect, he pauses. And then sometimes he pauses just because he doesn't know what to say. And he'll often do this thing where you're like, he'll say something that's kind of bullshit. And then he'll like stare with his eyes wide open at the camera, you know, and with kind of this like plastered grin on his <laughs> face, like, eh? so he'll do that a lot so he really does badly and yet what surprised me about this was he was the one out of the two who made a moral case yeah he kept saying over and over again you know some variation of we've got to bring freedom to the middle east you know we've we can bring democracy and then carrie and then carrie just agrees with all of those things and then is like you know but uh mr president why didn't you assemble a bigger coalition or whatever and he has trouble threading this needle because you know well because it's an inconsistent position well because uh, there are a couple of moments in the debate where bush accuses him of being inconsistent and carrie will say my position has been clear throughout did I think Saddam Hussein was a threat? Yes. <laughs> but there was a way to deal with that threat and a way not to. And the president made a mistake. Which which Kerry voted for. Yeah, so like he, he can't even disavow his own vote for the war. Yeah. It's a hard needle for him to thread too because he tries to make the case that we shouldn't have gone into Iraq because Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. Mm-hmm. He tries to make that case. Mm-hmm. He tries to make the case that... He pivots to North Korea as well. He's like, why weren't you like... Yeah. That's the real, you know, threat. And he he makes some half-hearted attempts to say, we didn't find any weapons of mass destruction, and yet with that knowledge, the president claims he still would have gone in. And yet, he doesn't disavow having voted for the war. First of all, what my opponent wants you to forget is that he voted to authorize the use of force, and now says it's the wrong war at the wrong time at the wrong place. I don't see how you can lead this country uh, to succeed in Iraq if you say wrong war, wrong time, wrong place, what message does that send our troops? What message does that send our allies? What message does that send the Iraqis? I have nothing but respect for the British and for Tony Blair and for what they've been willing to do. But you can't tell me that when the most troops any other country has on the ground is Great Britain with 8,300, and below that the four others are below 4,000, and below that there isn't anybody out of the hundreds, that we have a genuine coalition to get this job done. I found this incredibly difficult to watch, just like just as kind of a sheer spectacle. Like it didn't even have a pretense to anything kind of grander. I guess I knew in retrospect that Kerry wasn't exactly an anti-war candidate, and yet I think I was still surprised by the extent to which he wasn't, because as I recall, that election was a referendum on the war. Yeah, well, and, and Slacker Uprising, you know, where back where it all started. Yeah. I mean, Michael Moore is kind of like, he threads another kind of uh, needle, which is that, you know, we all need to vote for Kerry, but I'm not going to endorse Kerry until... Yeah. But I'm doing a kind of... Until right before the election, but I'm doing a kind of a, you know, 60 city tour or whatever to like get Bush out, stop yeah. the war. Yeah. And but I mean, basically, it's him campaigning for the Democrats without saying so. And he was also trying to do this thing of being like, well, we love the troops because we don't send them over to fight. That's right. Right. Which Kerry also, I mean, he doesn't say because we don't send them over to fight, but he, he just... He does say, like, you know, the, the war is not the same as the warrior at one point, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, one of those kind of 
test marketed lines. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of focus group lines in this debate. I mean, there's and Bush like absolutely like clobbers his. He says, "How can you fight a war when you say it's the wrong war in the wrong place at the wrong time?" He says that wrong war in the wrong place, the wrong time over and over. And he over says again. hard work a lot. Yeah, he says hard work mm. a lot. There are a couple of other things. What are what are some of uh, John Kerry's lines? Well, there's the what's the thing about the global test? Well, the global test is the thing that who who can forget the classic. Yeah. Well, because that was the line that George W. Bush, like, absolutely ran with. Mm -hmm. Um, Central to John Kerry's argument is that the coalition of the willing was not a real coalition at all. Um, Which is true, but I mean... Which is true, and I guess one of George W. Bush's focus group lines is to say, my opponent says we had no coalition, but but what about Tony Blair in England? What about Poland? (laughs) What about Poland? What about Poland? And then he doesn't name any other What about um, hmm, the Federated States of Micronesia? (laughs) Yeah, but the global test thing, that was something that Bush was then able to, you know, drag with him on the campaign trail after. My opponent thinks America needs some Mm. kind of a global test. But why don't we talk a little bit about these candidates? (laughs) So, John F. Kennedy, oh, I mean, Kerry. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, he was, he, was a, he was a great candidate for that moment because, like, you know, whatever you needed, he was a war veteran. He fought to protect the country. He was, he was both more of a troop than George Bush and yeah. also, like, the peacenik. Yeah, yeah. So the he, hippie. Yeah, yeah. So he, he fought and defended the country, but then he came back and protested it. And that's exactly what he's going to do here, you know? Oh, man. It was, it's amazing how, yeah, he was whatever he needed to be at a given moment. Yeah. And I mean, domestic policy was totally a thing in that campaign. I mean, just like, but what, what did the Democrats offer? I'm trying to remember what what their domestic policy was because like they weren't for same-sex marriage yet i mean they were for stem cell research that was a big issue on the campaign you know at at some point we're gonna have to watch the galactic brain version of what we watched tonight which is the the bush gore debate because you know which like i think i did watch that live yeah it's far back in the in the mists of memory that'll be an amazing document because it's a you know it's a pre-9-11 thing Mm -hmm. and because that election was fought over domestic policy and george bush ran as a domestic issues president who was was going to do all the stuff on education and all this stuff but with john Kerry, my memory of him running seems to be that everyone kind of regarded him as the lesser of two evils i don't remember a lot of enthusiasm for john Kerry. i remember the the case for him mostly being that he's not george w bush whereas hillary clinton obviously has fans yeah do you remember that i think that the sort of peacenik impression like i that people like michael moore honestly helped create mostly out of his record as having protested the vietnam war yeah i think that there were people like i remember kids in school wearing john Kerry pins so like there was some enthusiasm in the in the way that you know people always find a way to have some kind of enthusiasm real or imagined for just any democrat but the pro-bush kids were certain and they were much small you know in stratford ontario that was a smaller group but they were much more like they had a lot more conviction Kerry's not the most charismatic candidate is he i mean i i hate to uh well neither i mean it's amazing how you mentioned when we were watching this like no wonder that obama was such a hit right i mean this. it's it's like just the ability to speak is yeah. like i mean these these are two incredibly boring politicians 
It's amazing. George W. Bush surprised me on this on this viewing because he has this reputation as having been able to cultivate this swaggering cowboy persona, this alpha male. And yet, like he seems like a bit of a pipsqueak when you watch him on this debate. Like mm-hmm. he, he looks like a very small man. And yeah, he's shorter than Carrie, like noticeably. Like a higher very, pitched voice. Yeah, and he's very um, he's very theatrical. I mean. What I kept thinking was there's so much that's proto-Trump about George W. Bush. We're obviously going to talk about this at some point, but I mean, this kind of ongoing campaign to salvage George Bush, Mm -hmm. which is part of the kind of the broader effort to kind of extricate Trump from the Republican project, which Mm -hmm. is at best, it's kind of naive and grating and unfortunate. At worst, it's really quite insidious. When a guy like Trump becomes president, like it's such an awful thing to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, And it says so many terrible things about America. The one thing you can do is you can look at America and you can say like can okay what what can we do to actually fix this and then the other thing you can do is say well this is an aberration yeah and so previously George W. Bush was an aberration we're both old enough to remember when he was this uniquely unfit you know this this guy who wouldn't even you know he would read short briefings he wouldn't even read all the stuff that Clinton would have read yeah and also he's a Nazi who did 9-11 which was like you know that was circa 2003 who was kind of what the kid that's if you'd have taken a focus group from some of the kids at school (laughs) that probably would have been the consensus like there was a perception that he was this kind of like radical theocrat yeah and yeah he was was like he was like pandering to the religious right yeah or he he invaded Iraq because God told him so although all those things but now like because if we have two presidents like this so close to each other what that would say about america is too unbearable so now you've got to retcon the past and well, make him a principal that's why like, i want to go back to this this stupid trump tweet again about north korea because mm. like i really think obviously the presentation of it the medium through which he's doing it is is unique um but if you don't see how there's a line of continuity from George Bush essentially declaring an open-ended unilateral war, constantly talking in this debate and elsewhere about how we need to win, win, we're going to be winning so much. When he's asked Mm -hmm. in this debate, the moment when he's asked about why didn't things pan out in Iraq, like you said, he says... um, like, why, why didn't things kind of stabilize oh, and develop? So and he says, the reason is because we did our job too well. We won too hard. Yeah. You know, there's so much that's Trumpian. And of course about, that, you know, when you're too big a success, people just get jealous of you. And, yeah. When you you're, know, when they you're hate the, us because they ain't us. When you're the best looking one in a group of friends, it's, yeah. it's really tough. You have said there was a, quote, miscalculation of what the conditions would be in post-war Iraq. What was the miscalculation and how did it happen? Uh, no, what I said was that uh, because we achieved such a rapid victory, more of the uh, Saddam loyalists uh, were around. In other words, we thought we'd whip more of them going in. But because Tommy Franks did such a great job in planning the operations, we moved rapidly. And a lot of the uh, Bathists and Saddam loyalists laid down their arms and disappeared i thought we would uh, they would stay and fight but they didn't and now we're fighting them now yeah, um, so of course the insurgents are going to be there <laughs> at your back um yeah i mean it if you don't see a line of continuity between that between all those things not just between like i think bush's personal affect there's there are things that are trumpian about it but the politics he's promoting i think are incredibly Trumpy. And I mean, at this point, back in 2004, the president of the United States had just launched like basically unilaterally an illegal war in the Middle East. 
on completely made up, like completely contrived grounds um, that uh, had already by then uh, reaped uh, an unthinkable human cost and in the years that followed would, would continue to do worse. This was, you know, against a country that had already suffered tremendously under sanctions in the 1990s, which had caused starvation, among other things. You know, George Bush, I suppose, pulls off the presidential quote-unquote thing, you know, much better than Trump does. Although, honestly, it's not that much better. Um, well, the, his affect and his delivery, they're both, they both have this kind of like used car salesman mm-hmm. quality to them. But the, the, all the, all the kind of hyper, you know, the macho, like undercurrents, the, the idea that it's like a boxing match, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the, the irresponsibility, um, for want of a better word, of like speaking with so little rever. I mean, like the amount of destructive power at the hands of the president of the United States is greater than, you know, any that has been in the hands of any human being at any point in the history of civilization. And this is basically just the most like primitive chest thumping, which is exactly what Trump is doing now. If you don't see how there's a line of continuity from Bush to this or from Reagan to this or from, frankly, all the Democrats that ponder to it as well, you know, you haven't been paying attention. Well, the difference between Trump and Bush is that Bush in this debate and elsewhere was able to do some of that like schmaltzy heartstring tugging stuff. You know, he talks about the widows that he met on the campaign trail and and, you know, it, it, it's hard for me talking to them, knowing mm-hmm. that, that I made the decision to, to send their husbands overseas. But, but you know, uh, Becky Lou told me that... Yeah, uh, after, we, after we prayed and, and, and wept and had a laugh or two. Yeah, he actually says that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, she, she told me that he she understood why he was over there. And, and I hear that and I say, cut and run? Why? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, like, some, some variation of that. And, like, you know, he's still able to do it with that project where he, you know, paints portraits of the soldiers he sent off to their deaths like this is the thing that liberals like about him well and if you remember what was um you know what what moment uh you know early in his presidency earned trump you know the the praise of prominent liberal commentators Mm -hmm. it was when uh that navy seal who'd uh who'd been killed in in the raid and i I think it was yemen uh when trump in the state of the union addressed directly uh the soldier's widow that's what got uh, van jones saying you know in that moment he became president period you know people love that shit yeah and do you remember that scene in um the american president Mm -hmm. when they bomb a middle eastern country and somebody says to michael douglas oh that was that was so presidential and and michael douglas goes do you realize that in that country a factory worker a a janitor will not return home tonight you know blah, blah 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 i've just done the least presidential part of my job because like there's part of the liberal imagination that like what's well, sort of torn isn't it well it's like what it hates more than people overseas dying is a president who can't feel really bad about people overseas <laughs> yeah, dying you know yeah. <laughs> you know I, I think about missy johnson's uh, fantastic young lady i met in Charlotte, North Carolina, she and her son Brian, they came to see me. Her husband, PJ, got killed. He'd been in Afghanistan, went to Iraq. It's, you know, it's hard work to try to love her as best as I can, knowing full well that the decision I made caused her, her loved one to be in harm's way. I told her after we prayed and teared up and laughed some, that I thought her husband's sacrifice was noble and worthy. Well, revisiting the subject of George Bush reminded me of one of my favorite 
probably like long form pieces of writing ever, which was Elliot Weinberger's incredible uh, London Review of Books review of uh, George Bush's ridiculous ghost written autobiography decision points. And I mean, obviously, do you have any proof to back up that ghost written <laughs> assertion? Um, so he reviews it as a kind of uh, like Foucauldian text because <laughs> because like its authorship is in question. And the reason I thought of it is because, you know, whoever ghost wrote this book figured out a way to write exactly uh, like George Bush speaks. <laughs> so I'll, I'll read just a little preamble and then the text from the book. Um, occasionally someone in team decision points will insert a lyrical phrase, the tears on the begrimed faces of 9-11 relief workers, quote, cutting a path through the soot like rivulets through a desert. But most of the prose sounds like this. <clears throat> I told Margaret and Deputy Chief of Staff Josh Bolton that I considered this a far-reaching decision. I laid out a process for making it. I would clarify my guiding principles, listen to experts on all sides of the debate, reach a tentative conclusion, and run it past knowledgeable people. After finalizing a decision, I would explain it to the American people. Finally, I would set up a process to ensure that my policy was implemented. Um, so there's like 500 pages of that. There's a funny uh, description elsewhere in the book of a, a, a discussion between Bush and Cheney, which, as Weinberger says, gives a glimpse into how adept Cheney was at pushing Bush's, uh, Bush's macho buttons um, Dick Cheney was concerned about the slow diplomatic process. He warned that Saddam Hussein could be using the time to produce weapons, hide weapons, or plot an attack. At one of our weekly lunches that winter, Dick asked me directly, Are you going to take care of this guy or not? <laughs> this, was, this was his way of saying he thought we had given diplomacy enough time. I appreciated Dick's blunt advice. I told, <laughs> I told him I wasn't ready to move yet. Okay, Mr. President, it's your call, he said. Then he deployed one of his favorite lines. That's why they pay you the big bucks, he said with a gentle smile. You know, the ghostwriter seems to get it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's truly postmodern in that it's like a commentary on its own subjects. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, George Bush has like, there, there's this kind of reductive decisionism to the way he speaks in this debate. Like, it's just... You know, we did this thing that was good, and how could anybody say otherwise? You know, yeah. it's just so like. Well, do you remember there's that one part where where what is it? John Kerry John Kerry says, and and Bush says, "Well, well, of course I know that. It's it's my job to know that. <laughs> well, I I got I got guys coming in telling me that. It's my it's my job to protect the. I wake up every morning and think about protecting the American people. That's yeah. all I think about. The FBI direct. This is very Trumpian. When he says yeah. the FBI director, he comes into my office and we have a chat. Like yeah. it's just very like he ends every sentence with like like kind of an uptick in his voice. So it's like g g come on. See, like the thing about Bush, right, is that he was always like a fake at this. I mean. It's not to say that Bush wasn't and isn't very stupid, because of course he is. But this kind of folksy shtick is is kind of something contrived, you know? Like, this is the yeah. focus-grouped version of this. Whereas Trump is just the pure, like, dementia-brained, like, ruined by, like, you know... You know how... Have you ever read about how, you know, Tibetan monks, their brains are changed because they meditate for, like, 100,000 hours? And their brains, like, all the good chemicals and stuff, like... Like, they they live longer. Whatever, like, that process, uh, but in reverse, that's what's happened to Trump. You know? Like, that, pro that like process, but watching, like, 100,000 hours of Fox and Friends while drinking Diet Coke and Mountain Dew. Yeah, yeah. And uh, probably in his early years, fucking. <laughs> now watch this drive. <laughs> this land is your land. 
This land is my land. I'm a Texas tiger. You're a liberal wiener. I'm a great crusader. You're a Herman Munster. This land will surely vote for me. This land is your land. This land is my land. I'm an intellectual. You're a stupid dumbass. I'm a Purple Heart winner. And yes, it's true, I won it thrice. This land will surely vote for me. You have more waffles than a house of pancakes. You offer flip-flops. I offer tax breaks. You're a UN pussy. And yes, it's true that I kick ass. Ha! This land will surely vote for me. You can't say nuclear. That really scares me. Sometimes a brain can come in quite handy. But it's not gonna help you because I won three purple hearts. This land will surely vote for me.